0: Right, so welcome to today's episode of Infosec Journeys. We are delighted to be joined by Jeff White. Thank you for taking the time out, Jeff, uh, an investigative journalist who covers the technology space, the cybersecurity space. And I'm a real big fan of your work. You've covered so much uh, breadth of the industry to uh, we publish books about uh cyber attacks which we're definitely going to get into i I love all that sort of stuff the investigative reports you've done in across bbc forbes audible channel 4 etc and your podcast series Uh, we've got so much to pick apart with you jeff about the content you produce how you've broken into journalism how you've got to the stage you're at now uh, with your investigative mindset um to pick that apart but before we do that let me throw it over to you jeff for for an intro tell us who you are and, and what you're all about
1: yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Jeff White. I'm an investigative journalist. Uh, I've covered tech for, as you say, among others, Channel 4 News, BBC News, Sunday Times, uh, and I'm also the author of a book called Crime.com, which is proudly displayed, I see, behind, uh, behind Ashley there on the window Oh, cell. you've noticed it. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't look like it's been very well-thumbed, but... Uh, <laughs> well, you it's signed a signed it. copy, no less, as, as well. Oh, oh fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. When I just don't this- open it. It'll be worth megabucks. <laughs> <make a box. laughs> It'll be worth millions one day.
0: <laughs> I love the subtitle as well. From viruses to vote rigging, how how hacking went global, um, and you cover a lot of breadth of uh, of topics within the book. Tell us a bit about what what kind of content you cover then.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you've got to have a motivation, I think, for writing a book. Cause it takes a, it takes a long time. It's quite hard work, um, and so I when the idea so the, the publisher approached me to write a book about cybercrime they don't specialize in cybercrime or technology this publisher the general publisher and i thought well there must there's loads of books about cybercrime and you know I've, I've read quite a lot of them but what was interesting was looking around it, there wasn't there wasn't one i was thinking about my mom i was thinking if i wanted to give my mom a book about cybercrime w- what one would i give her and there's, there's really good books i mean countdown to zero by kim Zetter about the stuxnet attack is an amazing book mm. God, it's very detailed. And <laughs> I wouldn't really want to inflict that on my mum because like she's not interested in, you know, Iranian nuclear technology. But, but if you, so you know, I was trying to think, okay, is there a book I could just give somebody and say, look, this is all of it from beginning to end in a really nice, accessible way that's kind of interesting, covers the ground. And there wasn't. I, I, maybe I've missed it. Maybe I've, I've not seen it. But And that seemed a huge gap. It's like, it's a huge issue. And there's no book that you can say to people, start here. This is, you know, mm. I, I think if people are really interested in it, I'm really into it. I don't think my book's the end of, you know it's not all they have to read, there's loads of others, but as a starting point, it's really good. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of go, okay, why, do, why does hacking exist? Like the, start with the sort of why and, and where it comes from, then move through all the different episodes and kind of come as much as we can right up to date. And so sort of say, okay, this is, this is why it's a current threat. Uh, and, and what I did there was I, was I was trying to sort of split it down. I broke it down to three different groups. I so was, I was looking at nation state hackers, organized crime, and what I've broadly called hacktivists. So, very media savvy, media focused, perhaps lower skill level groups of people. And, and for me, what's interesting is looking at the attacks we've had over the last few years and the really big attacks, they've all exhibited signs that those three groups are coming together. There's a convergence. So, you've got governments borrowing from organized cybercrime, you've got governments also borrowing from hacktivists, you've got hacktivists starting to get into cybercrime. So, it's, there's, there's mergers between these different zones. Uh, And I think that's why suddenly cyber is becoming this huge issue. It's partly because we're using computers more, but but it's partly that these three groups have kind of merged together and swapped tactics and tools and resources. So that's what I was trying to get to in the book.
2: Nice. One thing I really do enjoy about the book is the tone of the language. It's not it's not dumbed down to a point where myself as a technologist fi- would find it boring. Um, but there is still, you know, detail in this book, which, which I do quite enjoy. So, you know, I definitely want to give you kudos for that. It's, it's, I, I do, I do enjoy the storytelling element of it.
1: it, it I'm really glad you said that because it, it's a fine balance. And to be honest, I've had this the whole time we've been covering tech, you know, particularly for TV trying to basically explain stuff in a way that's accurate but also not boring and compelling it's really difficult and my approach was to sort of say well okay i i'm going to try and include enough detail in the book that even folks who understand and know the story will think oh I i didn't know that bit but try and explain all that detail in a way that a member of the general public can keep up with so hopefully you hit and it sounds like manage that in your case anyway where people who you know understand the language really easily still find out something they didn't know a fact they didn't know and people who don't know the facts um uh, I don't know that you don't understand the territory can understand the language. So it's, it's yeah, it was a, it was a challenge, but I'm, I'm glad you feel we got there.
0: I think as well. I mean, some of the stories that you cover and, and the scenarios, uh, the real world scenarios, right. I mean, one of my particular favorites um, and it's one of my favorites because not that I lived through it, but I was working in the financial industry at the time relates to the Bangladesh bank heist. Right. Um, so it was a busy day in the office when, when that came out in the press, I can tell you looking for, yeah. You know, we had swift terminals and we were looking at logs and all the rest of it, all, all weird and wonderful fun stuff that we were looking at. But I, I guess, um, so actually to your point there, investigating and reporting on that side of things is one thing, but actually making that um, all, all of that kind of uh, complicated attack knowledge translatable to the to the to the general public, that's a real skill. How, how do you kind of research? I mean what swift is all of the complexities around the attack that happened and stuff how do you actually do your research around it to get to a point yeah. where you can translate it it's it's
1: a really interesting one that and it, the question isn't how you do the read because the research to be honest is um, i wouldn't say it's easy it's simple in that you just go to the internet and you just read <clears throat> just keep reading and reading and reading and, and increasingly everything you read you think yeah i know that bit i know that bit i know that bit um <clears throat> so the, the research isn't necessarily the difficult bit it's knowing when to stop um it's it's thinking i i don't have to get into that other bit of that I, I don't really need to understand that hmm. um because that's just a leap too far so it's kind of you, you basically go out to the territory you read and read and read and read and you amass this 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 folder of stuff so i used i used a package called scrivener which um i hadn't come across before but it's um it's a screenwriting piece of software and it's amazing you can um scrivener's So if you know, uh, there's a film called Memento by Christopher Nolan, which is all done in flashbacks and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What you can do with Scrivener is if you write a film like that, you can press a button and it automatically puts everything in chronological order. And then you can rearrange it and jumble it out of order. But at any stage, you can snap back to put it all in timeline order or you can press a button and it will show you every scene with a particular character in it it's an amazing piece of software but it's really good for journalism for writing as well because you can import everything so you can import um, documents as pdfs you can import videos you can import images and so everything that i read i would archive it and bank it into scrivener um and what two reasons number one it's all there um number two scrivener was great for concentration because Um, when I was coming to write the thing I didn't have the internet open if you like on my on my computer I had everything in Scrivener and I was just writing away and if I needed to look at something I had all the documents there and so I wasn't tempted to go to the internet and then get sidetracked Mm. looking at cat videos for three hours it's like (laughs) as soon as you open up Scrivener you're in that environment and you're just writing and and concentrating so it's really useful from that perspective but the other thing and this is what people stuff you find out about book writing nobody tells you references is just the most ball aching thing and to, to have all the references just there so that you can click and do it, it, mm. it saves so much time. So in terms of the research, that was kind of how I handled it.
0: So in terms of the fact-checking, though, around it, how, how do you get that kind of confidence that the stuff you're reading online and, and documenting is is actually, yeah. you know, what, what, what happened? It,
1: it's, I mean, it's the classic thing of two, two sources, two sources for everything. Um, but but there, was, there are things, and I'll just be honest about this, there are things in the book where there are conflicting accounts. The Bangladesh bank story is a great example. If you tot up the different figures that different people worked out for that, um, there's something like a $17 million difference at the end of the day between what happened there. And so you have to basically say, well, I'm gonna take this, you know, and as long as you're honest with the reader and say, I'm taking this as my guide, and this is what they said, conflicting reports vary. That's one thing, but another issue I had, so the u.s presidential election we cover obviously the hacking of the 2016 election um i wanted to just report the result because obviously hillary clinton got more votes but donald trump got in because of the way the u.s election works so i wanted to kind of cover that and i wanted to put the figure in how many votes they got so i went to the bbc website bbc good source looked at it and before we published the book, i was like okay i'll just go through one more time and just fact check i thought that can't be wrong but i'll just check it and sure enough there was a different figure somewhere else. I think Fox or Politico had a different figure. I was, well, I was thinking, well, there must be some government, there must be some US government <laughs> website that puts yeah. out the figure. Yeah. I couldn't bloody well find it. Anyway, uh, so stuff like that just terrified me. And there's a certain point where you just have to, you have to just quote a source. And if somebody comes back and says, oh, right, that source, I disagree, is a different one here. You come out and say, well, at least I've told you the source and you can disagree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, It gets to the point of what is a fact uh, and how do you know a fact? And that's quite, it's almost like a philosophical conundrum you end up dealing with.
2: Well, yeah, I was just thinking, you know, while you were why talking about that fact-checking is, you know, writing a book about technical and real-life events, like, like you said, must be absolutely... Um, so challenging to do, especially when misinformation is so ripe on the internet. You know, how do you? Is there a place you can go? And I know that some of these websites do exist where you could say, "This is the fact that I want to know, and it's a hundred percent true." Like, how does how does the normal person even figure out what's real on the internet anymore?
0: It's- I tell you what. I- Give you the answer that I watched a fantastic video, Jeff, that you did about Google Dorking, like uh, John Hopkins universities and how to how to validate, and that's something I I I genuinely (laughs) shared with my family as well. And like, stop asking me, just watch this video. (laughs) Exactly, nice man explains it for you. Just effing Google it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. (laughs) basically. Yeah, it's true. I mean, um, you know, I, I there are certain sources that have more credibility than others. Um, The BBC, whatever you think of the BBC, they do a great deal of fact-checking to make sure the facts are right. What they cover and and sort of, you know, what their correspondents think is one thing. But once something goes on the BBC website, generally they've done a pretty good job of fact-checking it. Reuters, AP, uh, you know, these these are other sort of newswire sources that do a great deal of work. There's also people that you know, I've read their work and I know their work. So we've mentioned Kim Zetta, the, the woman who wrote Countdown to Zero, fantastic journalist. And you read that book, you know that's somebody who's done a lot of research. So if that mm-hmm. person comes out with something, again, I'm inclined to, to, to put it in as a source and say, look, this is legit. My worry with this is, um, there's a great quote in the um, Intelligence and Security Committee report about Russia, Russian interference, which came out in July. And they said something along the lines of, uh, one of their witnesses said something along the lines of, "When people get to the stage of saying you can't believe anything these days, or who knows what the truth is, the disinformation merchants have won. The point of fake news and disinformation isn't actually to get out fake news; it's to make you doubt all news." Yeah. And I, that that terrifies me. If we're in that's that situation, that's very powerful. Yeah. yeah. It's worrying. Yeah. So you you just have to sort of say, look, <laughs> you know, I've been there. I've seen this. I've I've witnessed it. That's first-hand testimony. Everything else apart from that, you're you're trying to look at how reliable it is and how
0: how credible it is, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. No,
2: I, I I see it within my own family. You, you know, you'll have someone sending you a link, and the minute I see that the, the first part of that URL says Facebook, and I think, oh god, here we go. Um, and 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 you get it all the time, so it's just. I think if someone's a technologist, you probably have, you're a little bit more skeptical on what you might see on the internet and might want to Google it again or look on, well, Twitter's probably not the best place either, but you might you might not look in other places. But yeah, I think it's interesting if you're writing a book of, you know, the caliber you've written, the fact-checking process must be extensive. Mm. Um, and I was, you know, so how did this all start for you then? You know, where, where, where did you start um, getting into journalism or the technology side of side of things? Yeah.
1: Um, I uh, would wanted to get into the industry for a while. And actually what interestingly what prompted it was the dot-com crash. I was working for an internet company at the time and the company went under. Um, and it was literally, it was like the guy came in at nine o'clock in the morning and said, clear your desks, you know, and we hit the pub at 12. <laughs> we were still there at <laughs> right. 10 uh, at night. That was a, yeah, that was a bad night. Um, uh, and so after I thought, well, you know, what do I do? And I've been thinking about journalism and that because I was then unemployed you could sign up for this journalism course and it cost 10 pounds instead of I think a couple of thousand because it's a discount for unemployed people so I went down there with my 10 I literally paid with a 10 pound note and signed on to this course and um that was a six-month training course then I went to local papers I did the classic like the I learned shorthand that's how long ago and how traditional we're talking <laughs> um still useful uh so did that and then went into, sort of work on magazines and the, the magazine I was working for was, was broadcast magazine. And from there I went to, into broadcasting. So I went into radio and then into TV and, and now back to radio and, and now I do a bit of everything. So that was broadly speaking how I got into it.
0: Where how did you, cause there's a, I mean, to the outsider, um, there's a clear difference between writing, the journalistic writing content and then the, the audio, audio content and then you know, almost writing stuff for visual as well as the video kind of stuff as well. But as you say, you do, you cover all bases now. Mm. Do do you have like a preference where you start? I mean, back in the day, was it all kind of, you know, columns and articles and magazines and stuff? Is that, is that the kind Uh, of bread and butter or?
1: When I started out, I, I, the idea that I would ever end up being able to work in TV was, you know, wow, that would be, that would be amazing. Um, And having now worked in TV and done TV, it's good, don't get me wrong, but it, it, there are limitations. TV's like an oil tanker, you know. You point it at a target, and, and when it hits the target, it will probably demolish it. But it's it's very difficult to turn that round. Um, great example: when the, po- the Pope came to visit the UK, it's a papal visit, and it was the first one in however many years. And all the news networks were like, oh my God, a papal visit! So they dispatched satellite trucks and correspondents and cameras, and you know, ex- people lined the route with flags and stuff. And honestly just did not i'm not saying nobody turned up all i'm saying is the <laughs> thronging crowds did not want. and um that you could almost hear in newsrooms around the country and is going get the trucks back quick where's our cameras Oh, the cameras in bloody scotland because he's going to scotland first <laughs> like you can't change direction it's not very nimble tv news and also it doesn't you can't do detail i remember trying to explain things like ransomware in tv mm. news and, and you know that hacking is not an easy subject to cover we also pictures there are no pictures I mean, you know, a war in Syria, there's pictures of people blowing each other up. Um, mm, in mm. cybersecurity, there's no pictures. So what's interesting now is I, I really love working across all the different mediums because media, because, you know, if somebody's got good picture and I know it's, you know, a fun story, we can go film it. But the mm. stories now where I think that's never going to work for telly. So I just pitch it as a written piece and I can make it or I can make a podcast out of it. And this resurgence of podcast of, frankly, radio, um, you know, suddenly you're able to do much more. There's things at the moment we're covering... Um, I'm doing a podcast actually about the Bangladesh bank heist. I love it. I love it. And there's stuff with, I mean, that's all over the world. There's no way we could afford to go to these places to film. So Mm. being able to do that over the phone or over the internet these days, you know make a podcast out of it. it's really good so i love it what, i absolutely love working
0: what with kind it. of detail are you going into then because i know you did the darknet diaries on the bangladesh where i mean i i'd love to know how that came about if i'm honest because we're both massive fans of darknet diaries he's great jack isn't he
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: he's he's unbelievable storyteller and story writer um Yep, But um, but yeah, what, what kind, what's, the, what's the motivation as a piece of work then for Bangladesh specifically? What are you looking to get out of the podcast?
2: Well,
1: the, the Bangladesh Bank job, which for, for new readers, um, alleged North Korean hackers broke into Bangladesh Bank and tried to steal a billion dollars, um, only got away with 81 million <laughs> Um, but also have hit a lot of banks and increasingly cryptocurrency exchanges since. So their their, their winnings from the Bangladesh bank job have been dwarfed really by by the stuff they've got elsewhere. Um, so that's a chapter in the book, and it was my fa- It's my favorite chapter in the book. You're not supposed to have. It's like children. You're not supposed to have a favorite, but um, but we all do. Um, sorry, Amy. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, so, so it, it, I pitched it as a, a podcast to the BBC. I said, look, it's a fantastic story. It, it's almost what I love about that story is it's like somebody's watched a Hollywood heist movie.
0: Mm, you know, it is.
1: And they've thought, how would we do that in cyberspace? And they've done it. They've just gone yeah. ahead and done it. So it maps out in a beautifully episodic way. It's, there's a North Korean element, which is just fascinating. Um, it's endlessly fascinating, really, that country. And ha- how a country that's completely sort of off off-beam, just out. It's such a mm. bizarre and intriguing country. Um, so there's all of that stuff. But there's also, of course, what predates it. We're going into the Sony case and the hacking of Sony. And also what postdates it, the WannaCry episode, and then the subsequent cryptocurrency stuff. So you've got this amazing arc that you can work across. I mean, the series will sort of span a good 30 years or so. I think we're going to start in the mid-90s. And I can't like, wait for that. Oh, my I, gosh. I, I can't wait really fun. you know we're we're discovering new stuff the Bangladesh bank thing there's stuff that's not you ask five different people about one element of that story and you get five different answers and what i'm really looking forward to is actually being able to do the definitive here's mm. what happened when because i think we all know roughly what happened it's like well yeah but what was the order and there's there's still stuff in there that we're finding out that's that's not come out before.
0: (laughs) That's fascinating. I I always remember, I mean, one of the reasons I asked you that question about kind of fact-checking and research on these complex issues is, one of the examples around Bangladesh I remember is like a lot of the trainer thought was like, oh, well, they were infiltrated because mm-hmm. they were running like $9 routers on the perimeter. And it was obviously a security weakness that someone took advantage of. And then it's like, oh, no, actually it was a phishing email by a, a, like a, a malicious resume, CV, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, the, and there's clear evidence in the U S um, what's the, like the indictment against yeah. the, the North yeah, yeah, yeah. Korean hackers, et cetera, which go into detail around that. So but mm-hmm. like you say, there's so many, you know, bits little snippets of conflict inf- information. It's, it's fascinating. I have a. I, I. I'm so fascinated, and I cannot wait to, to 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 listen to this podcast when you when it's produced. Um. I, and I have some of the malware actually that was uh, that was used in that attack, and it's part of um uh, a, a study that I did to reverse engineer that and analyze it and stuff. And oh wow. All sorts of weird stuff that, um, uh, that, that is present in that malware, which is fascinating to explore as well. So, And do you, um, think,
1: do you think that's weird stuff because it's from North Korea? Do you think they you know, think one differently? Of the, gonna...
0: One of the most surprising things, I mean, what I've always found, I've spent um, you know, the last kind of six, seven, eight years, what have you, reverse engineering uh, malware, especially nation state level stuff and they generally the malware generally blends in to the normal BAU crappy malware that's out there because they don't want to burn all their zero days they don't want to burn all their exploits on you know a particular attack if they don't need to and this one seem like what I was so surprised about is there is Next to no layer of obfuscation in the malware. Like you can just, uh, you know, re- almost read not the source code, but you can, it's effectively in plain text. They're not hiding anything because I don't think they were, you know, necessarily looking to get caught, right? Um, and so it's quite easy to identify what the malware is designed to do and what stages it works at and, you know, how it interferes with the printer and stuff like that. You know what well, I mean? That's it's, interesting. It, yeah. It's yeah. And that's
1: presumably why we've got so much detail about it is because security researchers it's, it's, can
0: yeah because it 's not encrypted uh, you know there's a little there 's a layer of obfuscation but it 's very easy to bypass it 's not you know it's not protected in a way that you know if I was to write just a commercial piece of software that I was going to sell mm-hmm. or to protect my my source code, I yeah. would like pack it obfuscate it encrypt it all the rest of it, and make it hard for someone to reverse engineer mm-hmm. and they haven 't done that so that, that's what 's pretty interesting
1: and actually didn't they there was a thing where they they used um TLS to disguise the traffic going in and out. Yeah, like fake TLS.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah they, but they didn't, they didn't actually go through with it. So they, they, they made it look like it was uh, that kind of traffic, but actually it wasn't. So you could have read it. It's just that the computers weren't, you know... Yeah.
0: That is absolutely true. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, like, it's fascinating. And you think yeah. what? You, there's so many questions. I'd love to speak to these guys and say, "Why did you do it like this? Why did
2: you do that?" <laughs> yeah. Just
0: design decision, yeah. you know. But ultimately, <laughs> but I guess we'll never get there. But uh, I honestly, I can't wait for that series. That'll be a fascinating insight. Yeah.
2: So, what do you think? um So, from the North Korean perspective, which, like you said, is very interesting because I think I think it has that element of mystery. You know and I think that's why anything coming out of North Korea could be made into a film or you know or, or, or is being made into films mm-hmm. um What do you think North Korea's main motivation for most most of this is financial gain power you know what 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 do you see from your investigations um
1: I think well the stuff we see i think is is money motivated and and there's a really interesting timeline if you look at the sort of geopolitical timeline of it um In, I think it's 2013, um, North Korea gets hit with UN sanction 1294, Hmm. which of course we're all familiar with. Of yeah. is. I've got done. a post-it note here. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Who's a big poster on the wall? of <laughs> The UN sanctions. So that is basically North Korea was testing nuclear missile or testing missile technology. There was worries about nukes, and so the sanction came along, and this restricted them from the international financial system and bulk transfers of cash. So suddenly, North Korea's already limited ability to move money around just gets almost turned off and that was 2013 i think I'm saying and you know within within a year that they're sniffing around banks and so on there's been a long history with north korea as well certainly according to the u.s government um uh, and that's the other thing a lot of this is coming out of the u.s government and you do have to kind of test these premises sometimes but again according to them you know north korea has been into things like counterfeit currency been into movement of drugs um but into sort of illicit and counter, you know counterfeited goods generally we interviewed an fbi agent who claimed that he'd been asked to set up um a crystal meth laboratory in north korea and that this would work on a revenue split with the north <laughs> korean government so so you know it's gonna write un- it it's, unbelievable. Yeah, it's crazy but this is the thing because north korea's it's so hard for us to understand this country. It is so outside the the, the just the normal run of things that that to understand its motivations, I think, is really difficult. I mean, but money just seems to be something, and and that's mm-hmm. obvious because trading internationally is difficult. I mean, they make ginseng and and mushrooms. I think are the two of the things they sort of do make and export legitimately. Um, I read a thing the other day, and I do not I don't know whether this is true, but it's an interesting thing where Samsung and LG bought gold for their smartphones from North Korea, but without knowing it it had actually come from North Korea. So so the country does trade, but it's just all its trade has to be shonky because it's kind of cut off from the international community. I mean, I just wouldn't it be wonderful if the regime there goes and and the country's country's opened up, but you'd have to open up in a way where. You'd have to do it in a really careful way, wouldn't you? If a mm-hmm. regime came in that was open to, to opening up to the world, I mean, there's so many sort of damaged people psychologically in that country. You know, tourists coming along and photographing them would be be tricky. But wouldn't it? I just it's one of those, it's the country in the world I would love to go to probably most.
0: Yeah, it <laughs> would. would be absolutely fascinating holiday, wouldn't it? Let's be honest. <laughs> 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 wouldn't be a holiday, but uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess touching on a similar topic, you produced. um uh, a, a podcast series on the dark web, which I really enjoyed. What? How, how did that come about? Then was that something that you know you you, know, you through your knowledge and, and uh, awareness of the dark web wanted to kind of bring to light, or is it something that was?
1: Uh, I was com- I was commissioned to make that one, and it um, I've never actually sort of said, talked about this. It. Not it's not a sort of particular secret. It's just a kind of bizarreitude. We got pitched a story. With, with, somebody said that they knew the guy who invented Bitcoin satoshi nakamoto
0: oh nice yeah who doesn't know him well exactly yeah Yeah.
1: (laughs) so you know this is a worldwide scoop so this guy comes in we're like oh my god might actually be meeting you know and the the chap who'd been pitched this didn't know anything about technology so he got in touch with me at channel 4 it's a colleague of mine at itn which makes channel 4 news he said look you work at channel 4 news you know all about tech come down and meet this guy and just vet him and see whether and i mean really (laughs) he had an iphone 4 (laughs) and i was like this (laughs) (laughs) is a long time after iphone 4 and i just looked and thought if you're really satoshi nakamoto would you really be that was the first sort of clue guy was a total fantasist um wow but the colleague of mine at itn who who met this guy we were talking about things and he said oh the dark web that's fascinating isn't it and so they pitched a series on the dark web to audible and um and we and we got it commissioned and again um you should go into these things think, "Oh well, you know, I've been covering the dark web for ages. I, I you know, I'm sure everybody knows about it. We're not going to cover anything new, but it, you, you find out all this new stuff that you didn't know. And the, the main thing about the dark web was because it works on two levels. You've got the sort of routing, you know, the kind of internet routing protocol, but you've also yep. got the publishing protocol that goes on top of it. So what that means is all these dodgy websites where, you know, all this dodgy stuff goes on. You didn't have to have them. You could have just had the internet routing protocol without, allowing publishing on that protocol of hidden mm. sites, the Tor hidden mm. services. So I, when the penny dropped, I, you know, we were lucky enough to interview one of the guys who developed the Tor protocol. And I said to him, so why, why did you do that? You must have known these sites were going to get used for, you know, for dodgy stuff. And his answer was really interesting. He said, you know, when, the, when they invented the car, criminals used cars to get away from crime scenes really quickly and the police were left behind. But we didn't outlaw the car, you know. So I thought it was a really interesting argument. I'm not sure I entirely agree with it, but it's an interesting argument.
0: That's fascinating. I've never heard that before. And and now that you you, you kind of surface that, it's 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 it is really an obvious question. Like why would it, like they they uh, the U.S. Navy kind of banned it as like this was a protocol for us to communicate securely overseas and all the rest of the privacy and anonymity. But in order to be anonymous, everyone has to kind of use the platform and service. Yes, but exactly. Yes, it yeah. doesn't mean to say you have to host content. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's well, maybe a, that drives the traffic. I don't know. There's a technical reason for it in that to be truly
1: anonymous, obviously when you, when you go into the internet using Tor protocol, once you've you know, washed around in that system, once you bounce out at the other end and you hit the websites that you're going to, then you come out of, tour if you like Mm. so the idea of inventing these sites was they would sit within tour and you would enter the tour maze as it were be able to visit the website and then come out without ever sort of revealing yourself so i think that that was the logic i probably explained it very well but that was the logic um but but, yeah it seemed tailor-made for kind of Mm. nefarious purposes so what
2: about sorry go on no go on i was gonna say um so i you know i don't use tour at all anymore you know, years ago anymore. You know, years my drug days are behind me. Yeah, that's that's long gone. But you know, you know, you'd 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 be running the Tor browser because you know everyone told you it was a safe way to surf the internet and you'd be using you know Tor exit nodes. But you know, through your research and you know what you've seen and people you have spoken to, you know, I know the dark web is used you know a lot for you know illicit trade. But you know, is 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 it really used that much anymore? The people, are people still using the Tor to to trade wares and and hacking tools Z? I, I, I just don't think that's really the case much. I, th- I think I think
1: you're right to a certain extent. I think I don't know what the usage figures are, and there 's an easy you can check on the Tor project website, and it shows you the usage numbers. Um, they got a boost actually after Snowden, so I know there's been there's been a boost in numbers. Yeah, no um, surprise. I think Tor is. There's been a number of factors in this number one police police takedowns and exit scams where site owners just disappear with the money police infiltration. You know, there's been a, there's been significant cases and each one of those damages the trust. I mean the Hansa and alpha Bay takedown was the sort of mm, um, case in that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's damaged the trust but As far as I'm aware, a lot of the hacking infrastructure still relies on Tor. So if you're going to send, you know, going to send commands on your command and control server, you might use Tor to do that. If you're going to, I don't know, obfuscate some particular element of your hacking campaign, Tor can be used as a sort of tool to do that. So I think it still gets traffic from there. There are still loads of sites you can go to and you can buy drugs and you can don't but you can buy drugs and you can buy some sort of hacking software and so on but increasingly uh, my sense for those sites is they're increasingly shop windows because i think the trade is going on on an encrypted apps and i think that's what's really chewed yeah. away at tor is this idea of well if we want to communicate securely we've got signal we've got telegram we've got whatsapp and actually iMessage message and so on that the end-to-end encrypted and so i think you know the that sort of maybe chipped away at tours.
0: What was that recent, oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but the police, uh, was it the, the Dutch police busted open that, um, mm. that, that mobile yes. phone platform provider. I can't remember the name of them. Though.
1: Encro, was EncroChat? Have I got that right?
0: That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the that's NCA had right. a field day with that, right, in the UK. Mm. So I, I, yeah, I that's, yeah. It goes to show exactly what you're saying there. I think this kind of offline, well, not offline, but, you know, kind of off off the radar um, mm. encrypted communication seems to be where everything is at. The shop window mm. idea is very interesting. I, I have um, uh, now and again some involvement with the IWF, the Internet Watch oh, Foundation, yep. around the kind of CSAM um, mm. uh, issue uh, being uh, working for a content provider. Uh, and so, um, or service provider, I should say, not a content provider. But the... Um, what's 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 really interesting actually is that they say yes the dark web is used for like you know uh child pornography and abuse and all the rest of it but actually the 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 problem still largely exists on this on the what do you call it the surface web the yeah, normal the internet web, kind yeah, of thing it's yeah. surprising that it's not all shifted over to this yeah. you know murky world that we paint it in you know so yeah so, yeah weird. yeah yeah i mean this is you know it's an interesting thing that the
1: that basically dark web site owners do not want to appear on the radar of law enforcement. And Mm. one surefire way to do that is to host child sexual abuse material. Mm. So there's good, you know, it's a very prosaic reasons why a dark web site owner would say, no, we don't want any of that stuff. It's not because they, you know, morally object to it. It's because it's bad for business. Um, So I think that's, that's an interesting sort of point. So the IWF make.
0: You've got such a rich background and history in, in journalism and investigative journalism across technology. And we touched upon where it started for you um, and, you know, your, your kind of um, your growth within this space. How, how would you advise people to kind of break into this industry in the modern day? You know, with all of you yeah. know, the, certainly, I guess, you know, post COVID as well, whether it's there's yeah. more barriers to entry into the industry. How 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 would you kind of advise on that? In terms of journalism, the journalism industry, you mean? Yeah, I guess investigative journalism, yeah. um, you know, and I guess specifically around technology as well, um, which is obviously the fun stuff. So.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant in a way. It's, it's You know, I talked about, the, you know, when I first entered journalism, I still learned shorthand. Like, that's how long ago it was. It's changed immeasurably, and it's changed for the better. And the great thing about it is, you know, we used to, even as recently as, you know, the, the sort of, what was it, 20 years ago, so when I started training, you know, journalists and publishers were still sort of the gatekeepers you know you couldn't get on telly this is pre-youtube you couldn't get on telly without somebody putting you on telly you know unless you want to do sort of public access you know the cable public access cable stuff um but, but, but you know now you can frankly if you want to get into telly start making youtube videos and put them on youtube there you go it's, you know you guys have done yourself it's it's mm. It's that simple. Um, And and the wonderful thing is I get the Hmm. wonderful, maybe not wonderful in some other ways. I I suspect audiences care a little bit less about quality now than they did before. Um, You know, One of the things we used to do in TV and we used to obsess about was polish. You know, we're gonna make everything polish. Everything's gonna be seamlessly edited. The camera angles are gonna be, you know, just so. And you know, you never sort of see any of them sort of shakes or wobbles or anything like that. And and I, Hmm. I look actually now at some of the really popular content and it has those wobbles in it. And if you look at podcasts and how podcasts work, a lot of what people like, I think, about podcasts is the fact that presenters on podcasts, you've talked about Jack Rysider at, at, um, at uh, Darknet Diaries. One of the things is him thinking out loud and going, I don't understand this. So how does this work? Mm. That would be unforgivable in a sort of, you know, <laughs> professional journalism column. You never sort of see it. Yeah. And um, one of the things I did with my own podcast, Cybercrime Investigations, was to sort of say, you know, go down the blind alleys and say, so I went down this blind alley and I spent two weeks researching, and it didn't go anywhere. You'd never see that as mm-hmm. part of professional journalism. So I, th- I feel like for people wanting to get into this area, A, you can just write your own blog, make your own podcast, put your own YouTube video up. Even if it's rubbish at first, don't worry, because that's practice, um, f- number one. Um, Number two, you'll get the hang of it and it'll improve and you'll work out what, you know, what you do want to say and how you do want to say it and you'll, you know, you you can progress, you can practice. You know, I wasn't given a practice newspaper to work on before I became a journalist, you know. Um, but also for, for me, as a journalist, trying to find commentators and interviewees, first thing i 'll do is google them and if they 've got a YouTube channel or a podcast or a blog i 'll read you know i 'll read it so you can see what this person 's like mm. so if you 're wanting to get into the media as being a guest or being an expert or a commentator or contributor, putting up some YouTube videos of yourself having a website writing a bit you know this sort of helps um, and the other thing that i 'd say is um, it, there are people I know who write fantastic blogs who are basically journalists, but they're lawyers or they're technology people, tech security people. But you read their blog and you can read it like you would read a publication. And again, I think for the public, the idea that oh, well, this person's an expert in the field and this person's a journalist, that's breaking down. You know, you can read a blog and think, well, this person's an expert and a good journalist. So mm. I, think it's a, I think it's a really rosy future. I think it's, it's, the future's quite bright for people who want to break into it.
2: So you know, you know yourself you, you seem you seem extremely technical anyway from you know our, our conversations or mm-hmm. um, well you at least appear very technical which you know which is which is amazing so would you say you're a, a journalist first or a technologist first I know you worked in technology before entering journalism but mm. you know how, how have you kept that that, that balance or how have you kept that level of technology knowledge.
1: Um, I'm a journalist first. I, yeah, I wouldn't pretend yeah. to be a techie or, or an expert in that way. And I think that's quite important because my job isn't to understand all the tech. My job is to understand enough of the technology to be able to explain it accurately and comprehensively to comprehensively to an audience. I think at the point where I start becoming a techie, there's a risk that... Um, I risk that I lose the audience and actually I work the podcast I'm working on at the moment. I'm working with a producer who is not a techie at all. And that's really helpful because I can sometimes say things or, or put things in the script. And she goes, no, actually, I don't understand that. So working hmm. with somebody, she's choosing a second la- line of defense between getting too incompre- incomprehensible for the audience.
0: I think so many roles that we, um, that we, we've spoken to people about throughout this series and uh, in the, you know, we come across in, in infosec working in, in industry, one of the core skills is translating that information into yeah, yeah. into non technical um, yeah. audiences and stuff like that. And it seems to be, it seems to feature throughout every every kind of role. It doesn't matter if you're C suite level in execs yeah. or you're in an analyst world, etc. It's it's amazing, yeah. really. It,
1: and and also my experience of the people who control the money, they're not generally techies. Mm. And and being able, to, you know, frankly you want to improve the tech you've got to get the money somebody's got to release some budget to you so you can hire these people or do this particular thing being able to just present a compelling case as to why you know is is, is really useful it's kind of you know it's classic sales skills isn't it? it's like what's your story why do you want the money mm, <laughs> it's not yeah. about the money it's always about the story <laughs> i think storytelling skills can be you know can 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 do that and also i mean practical experiences and war stories and stuff people love that you know you you like, If you think about it as human beings, we've always learned through stories, like campfire stories. That's, stories are how we share information between each other. So if you're trying to sort of convince somebody to give you extra budget or to do a particular thing, whatever, telling them a story is a key way of imparting the information to them. So I think stories, stories are really powerful from that perspective.
0: I think the advice you've given. I've written so many notes already about you know the, the, what you've spoken about how people can put themselves out there. A phrase I often use to people, especially when starting out in like the malware spaces, just start before you're ready because you're never yeah. going to think you're you're ready or good <laughs> yeah, enough yeah, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, um, and and that really resonates. But I've I've noticed Scrivener. I've, I'm going to put that in my arsenal for the next time <laughs> I put some kind of content together. I think that's going to be really powerful.
1: Have a look at it. It's Interesting. About. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: Fantastic. I, I was going one, one question I was going to ask you before we uh, we end up is you know you see a lot of the negative sides to cybersecurity and you know we interviewed Jessica Barker a few a um, few weeks ago mm. and one of the things that she talks about is well no one actually focuses on the positives like you know there is you know you, you try and Google positive, positive cybersecurity stories <laughs> you probably will not find any like like yeah. um, so w- what do you think like you know from your from your perspective and your lens what do you think we are doing well with
1: uh, the, the, the depressing truth about this is loads of stuff that goes well. You know, every. You know, that old thing of, you know, the, the, the thieves, the enemy only has to be right once, and the bad guys only have to be right once, and we have to be right all the time. Mm. The, the problem is for me as a journalist, I'm interested in the bits that don't go well. You know, yeah, yeah. there are people whose job it is to talk about the stuff that goes well and that works out well, and they're called PR people, and that's, that's their job, and it's really good. Um, so I do think. I, you know, for me, you're inevitably going to get the bits that went wrong. But I do think Jess is right. Then I've got a lot of time for Jess, and she's done a lot of work on this. And, and yeah, she's she's absolutely right. The thing that really annoys me isn't so much me as a journalist covering the negative stuff because that's, that's kind of what I do. It's it's in in, in companies institutions themselves. It's it's the cybersecurity um, function being sort of branded as being this kind of negative overbearing thing I was like you you did not get your password right you clicked on the email you know mm-hmm. um, and I I feel that's where a lot of the negativity that I, I see is you know probably not good comes in um, you know how about like a bottle of champagne for the best password that's that's worth doing, is it not? You know, some you know, there's, there's a lot of stick and not a lot of carrot. You know, yeah. comes into these things. So I just feel, you know, in organisations, you've got to get the balance between sort of saying to people, look, this stuff matters, and it you can you could damage the company very badly by this. But you've also got to somehow sweeten that pill by saying, look, we're going to empower you with this information. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be part of this. And, and actually, when you've done a good job, we're going to congratulate you. You know, this department didn't click on any phishing emails this month, so they get mm. to go go-karting or something just <laughs> for that but do you see what i mean like as something to sort yeah. of you know say look when you've done well we congratulate you rather than just
0: yeah, yeah that's so true very true indeed um Jeff, thank you for taking the time to speak to us. It's been a pleasure. I, I, if I'm honest, I could keep going and going and going and never let you go. <laughs> um, and I'm super excited to, uh, to to see and hear your your podcast on on Bangladesh in in particular. Mm. Uh, but the other content that you've produced, which is exceptional, uh, we'll definitely link in the show notes here as well. And I definitely encourage people to go and check out and also get your book, crime.com, which is uh, uh, doing really well on Amazon. So well done for that. Thank you for for sharing the insights into, into how you got started, where it all began, the kind of stuff you work on the kind of cool stuff that goes down in cybersecurity, i think uh, is really going to resonate well so thank you
1: fantastic thanks. thanks so much for having me take care